Okay, so if you're new with us, um, we've been going through the Bible. We've got a chart. You can get it on the internet or pick one up here. Everybody's reading through the same chapters and verses every week. It, I loved the idea when another pastor in town shared it with me, and we jumped right on it. And so many people have come up to me and told me what a blessing it's been to them. Uh, personal, for their own spiritual development, how that they find themselves conversing about the passages with other people. It's a beautiful thing. So I'd encourage you to join us, even if you're not part of our church regularly. It's a good way to get through the Bible in a year. And even if you're out of town, you know, you can follow along with us anytime you want. So what I do in advance, I read the sections that you're reading, and then I prepare my message based on what you're reading so it's fresh in everybody's mind. Everybody's but mine, because I looked at this three weeks ago. (laughs) But this week... For this week's readings, I came across three problems. And what I mean by that, there's three passages of Scripture that we read together that don't make sense when you first look at them. They look like they contradict or they're confusing, and then people write books about them or include them. And even some of the skeptics will say, see, you can't trust the Bible because this says this and this says this, and it's not the same thing. We've got three of those passages in our reading this week. So I just decided, hey, I'm going to take all three of those on. And what I want to do is not just answer them for you, but I want you to try to understand the thinking process that goes through my mind when I encounter a passage of Scripture that initially doesn't make sense to me either. I want to analyze it and see, okay, what's the problem here, and how do we go about finding the answer? I have found over the years that most Bible problems... There's an answer to. It just takes a little bit of research, a little bit of effort, and some thinking. A lot of the Bible is very simple, but a lot of it's not. And then some of them I don't have answers to. And so in my mind, it's, well, I don't have an answer to it yet. Some things, you know, this thing was written thousands of years ago in different languages, different culture, different time. It's, a, it's amazing that we understand as much of it as we do. It's a God thing because we understand most of it. But when we get under it with a microscope, which is a healthy thing to do, we hit some confusion. Let me read to you the first problem. All right? It was in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. And this was called the holy place. And behind the curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, or you might have heard it called the Holy of Holies, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Did you see the problem? Most of you wouldn't have. It's, It's not that obvious. Let me read a little piece of it again and see if it maybe jumps out at you this time. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. Now, some of you are saying, Steve, I still don't got it. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm dragging this out. I want to give you an aha moment. Exodus chapter 30. Listen to what it says, verses 6 and 7. This is how God told Moses to arrange the holy place and the holy of holies. By the way, 
the holy place. Imagine the holy place and the holy of holies being a rectangular room. One third of the room would be behind the curtain and hidden. Only the high priest could go there once a year. The other two-thirds of the room, other priests could access. There was a table that had to have fresh bread on it every day. It was called the, the, the show bread or the, the, the table, uh, the bread of God's presence or face. This was food right before God, but it wasn't for God. It was representative of the tribes of Israel, and only the priests were allowed to eat it. We'll talk about this in a moment. There's the golden lampstand, the menorah. Now, the original had seven branches. This one's just made for Hanukkah. This one's different. And then behind the curtain, Ark of the Covenant. Listen to what it says. Put the altar, the altar of incense, put the altar in front of the curtain that's before the Ark of the Testimony, before the atonement cover that's over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. Did that cool picture come up? Yeah, there it is. So just as the picture depicts the altar of incense, Moses was told to put right in front of the curtain. When we read Hebrews, it said it was back there with the Ark of the Covenant. There's the problem. Why would Hebrews put the altar of incense with the Ark of the Covenant when Moses said it was to be in front of the curtain and that's where it was, in front of the curtain? So people say, aha, there's confusion. The Bible is contradicting itself. Well, there's definitely confusion, but it's not on the Bible's part. It's on our part. I'm sure the guy who wrote the book of Hebrews, if you haven't read it, it's an amazing read. It explains the whole Old Testament system and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. I'm sure he knew exactly what Moses said. He wasn't confused. He knows this stuff better than we do. So what is exactly going on? So the question I had in my mind was, what's going on? The first answer always to any Bible problem is read a little further. So I did. Exodus 30, I just read to you, verses 6 and 7. Now let me read to you verse 10. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. Its being the incense table on its horns. What do you mean horns? Well, the way the original was designed, this one's um, similar, but not quite the same. The four corners actually kind of flared up into horns. And so it says, once a year, Aaron, the high priest, shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering, for the generations to come, it is most holy to the Lord. All right, so in verses 6 and 7, we're talking about the priest who comes in every day to offer incense on this. But in verse 10, we're talking about once a year. We're talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, Hebrews, I read to you, verses 1 through 4. Read a little further. Listen to verses 6 through 7. When everything had been arranged like this, the thing as I just read to you a moment ago, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry, just like Moses said, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he, where? On the horns, which he offered for himself 
and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So here's now what I know. We're talking about 364 days a year in one section, and we're talking about the Day of Atonement two verses, three verses later. The Day of Atonement was totally different. It was one special time of the year, and that's what Hebrews is talking about, the Day of Atonement. Okay, Steve, but nevertheless, it says the altar of incense is inside there on the Day of Atonement. Exactly. Just on the Day of Atonement. So how does it get in there? Now, if you're thinking, Steve, it's not that big. You can just move it. Exactly. But there's a problem. Nobody else is allowed in there except for the high priest. So even though one of the solutions to our problem is this. Now it's in there, and when Yom Kippur is over, take it back out. But that really doesn't fully answer it because only the high priest is allowed in there. So, even though that's a possible solution, it's not the best one because he's the only one allowed in there. And this was carried with poles and took two to four guys to move it. Not because it was big, but that's the way it was moved. So, I came up with a couple other very likely scenarios. Remember I told you it was one room divided into two. One-third over there, two-thirds over here, right? Watch this. How many rooms is it now? It's one room. The Holy of Holies has just extended into the holy place. And since it was said specifically to be right in front of the curtain over against the Ark of the Covenant so that he could make atonement on it during Yom Kippur, which was also done on the Ark of the Covenant, this scenario then is quite reasonable to me. It is now in the Holy of Holies. Perhaps not the best answer, but conceivable and better than the first. I think the best answer would go something like this. You with me? So what room's it in? It's in the Holy of Holies. It's really not that big a deal. It makes sense when you think it through and look at all the particulars. So that was the first problem. Not a big problem, but it is something people recognize and point out. I gave you three possible solutions to that problem. Second problem is a little harder. Third problem, hardest still. Second problem. Now, I told you in your scripture reading this week, we came across three problems. But this one, actually, we came across the solution. The problem's in another verse. So I've got to read to you the problem verse. Then I'll read to you the solution verse that you read this week. Here's the problem verse. 1 Chronicles 21, 1 through 7. Satan rose up against Israel, and he incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, from the southern end of Israel to the northern end of Israel. Then report back to me so I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over, my Lord the king. Are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? 
The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Verse 6. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, those two tribes. He left out two tribes. Because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. That's the problem verse that we're going to get the answer to in just a moment. Now, actually, this is problematic for us on many levels. The one I want to deal with is, what's the big deal in taking a census? We take a census in our country all the time. Why was it a sin? Why was it difficult? Why was it a problem? Because of this passage of Scripture, there are actually churches that won't count attendance because they think it's a sin. I don't think they read far enough. There's an entire book in the Bible called Numbers. So I don't think counting is wrong. In fact, when you get to the book of Acts, Peter gives that big sermon after Jesus' resurrection. It says about 3,000 people were saved. Somebody counted. So there's nothing wrong with counting. But why? Nobody knows. This is such a confusing passage of Scripture. A part of that is actually answered in this week's reading. First, let me point out what we do know. One, the census was considered wrong. We don't know why, but it was obvious. It was considered wrong. Joab, his chief commander, tried to dissuade David and warned him that he would bring guilt on Israel. Number three, David nevertheless went forward with it. Number four, God punished Israel for this census. And then we find out a few verses later, and this is the fifth point I want to make, is the punishment came as, as a plague, a plague upon Israel. First uh, Chronicles 21, 14. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel all fell dead. So whatever was going on, God took it very seriously. And by the way, we got the number of how many fell dead, thinking somebody must have counted. <laughs> so, why was the census sinful? Don't know. But they knew, and they did it anyway. And people suffered for it. Solution, though. Check this out. Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Verse 16. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. I don't have enough knowledge to know why counting people in a census required atonement. Why a count equaled a life that had to be redeemed with atonement money. I don't understand that. Someday I probably will, but right now I don't. I do know, though, that God told them, if you're going to take a census, you make sure you collect an atonement shekel or whatever it was, half shekel, from every person that will save their lives. David didn't collect any atonement money, and people died. So why all that happened, I can't say for sure, but it was avoidable. That I can say for sure. 
He didn't have to count it all, and if he did, he could have consulted with the priests and done it in accordance with the Torah. But he didn't. David was a man of God. He was an amazing human being. He's one of the people I'm looking forward to meeting in heaven. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I want to meet certain people when I go to heaven. He's one of the guys I want to meet. Uh, he's, he's like one of the top guys I want to meet because he's not only um, an amazing person, but he was a warrior, and he was a prophet and a king, and he wrote scripture. So I got to meet this guy. Having said that, he did some stupid things, some sinful things. He committed adultery, he committed murder, and he played fast and loose with the holiness of God. Now, that doesn't give us an excuse to behave like him, but it gives us a little confidence to know that nobody's perfect. You can be a mighty woman or man of God despite the stupid things we do. In fact, David played fast and loose with God's holiness on more than one occasion. Do you remember he was all excited about taking the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? He got a big festivity going, and they were dancing and singing, and they put the ark on an ox-drawn cart, and they were taking it to Jerusalem, and the cart stumbled, and some guy put up his hand to steady it, and God struck the man dead. And David got mad at God. From David's perspective, it must have been, hey, I'm trying to honor you. This man was innocent. He didn't want the thing to hit the ground, and you killed him. You're not fair, God. And David went and put the thing away for a couple of years or however long it was. God said in the Torah, there's one acceptable way to transport the ark. On the sticks that were made gold-covered specifically for it, stuck through the rings on the shoulders of the priests. Nobody else was allowed to touch it. It was known, and David knew that, and David disobeyed it. Don't mess with God's holiness. God was trying to teach ancient Israel about his holiness. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. The next day, a guy's collecting sticks. Kill him. Why? Because collecting sticks is a capital crime? No, because spitting in God's face is. The day, I mean, God just said, don't do that. And God said, I'm doing it anyway. Okay. We don't know enough about God's holiness today either. But God's not working with us like he was working with them, thank God because he was doing that when the church started, and look what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They got struck dead for doing something you and I have done more than once, telling a fib. So sometimes God reveals his holiness. He's very present in their midst, and when he's present in their midst, you can't go spitting in his face without there being some sort of ramification. So David played fast and loose with God's holiness, I wonder if we're doing that today. How seriously do we take God's holiness today? Steve, what is holiness? Well, it refers to honoring God in a very special way. Honoring God there happened to be things. But with the collecting of sticks, it was obeying his commands. The Bible says, be holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. Sexual purity following his commands and giving and loving people and serving people and being part of a community, lying, cheating, stealing. When we do the wrong things, that's unholiness. When we do the right things, that's holiness. 
All right, so we saw two of the problems. I have pretty good answers for them. I think I got a good one for, for number three, but this is the hardest one. I'll do the best I can to explain it the best I can. Also from Hebrews chapter 10. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Messiah came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Now, when you first read that, you say, Where's the problem, Steve? I don't see any problem. Hebrews is referencing Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Let me read to you Psalm 40, 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It's written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Let me put it up on the screen for you here, side by side, so you can see the problem that I saw. Psalm 40, first verse we looked at, verse 6 says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Hebrews 10 said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Word for word quote. But look at the next section. My ears you have pierced in Psalm 40. Hebrews 10 says, But a body you prepared me. Uh oh, that's not the same at all. Then it says, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Okay, that's similar enough in my mind. Then I said, here I am. Then I said, here I am. Same thing. I have come. It's written about me in the scroll. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come. Same thing. I've come to do your will, O God. But that's okay, because in the next verse, I desire to do your will. Oh, God. Oh, my God. But then it adds, your law is within my heart, and that's not here at all. Your law is within my heart. So now you see the problem. Or do you? Here's, I mean, we've got to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Was the author of Hebrews trying to quote the psalm, or was he referencing the psalm? See, if he was trying to quote the psalm, we've got a bigger problem. But if he was just referencing the psalm, then we don't have a problem at all. We could be done right now. He was referencing the psalm. He pointed out the parts that were significant for his point, and he moved on. No problem. He wasn't quoting it. He was referencing it. By the way, the way Scripture uses Scripture, reference is common. Sometimes Scripture quotes Scripture word for word. Sometimes it just references Scripture. Sometimes it alludes to Scripture, Sometimes it paraphrases Scripture, and sometimes it takes pieces of Scripture and combines them. So if he's just referencing Scripture, we don't have a problem. We're good. But what if he's quoting it, which he might be? Then we have a problem. If he quoted it, the question I first asked myself, well, which translation did he quote from? You know, there's different Bible translations. You probably have several at home or in your phone. I do. And they don't all read the same. So if he was quoting, he was obviously quoting a different Old Testament translation than the one you have in front of you. That doesn't answer all our questions, but it at least gets us thinking in a different direction. Let me tell you about translations 
If I took five Spanish speakers in this room and gave them a paragraph to translate into English, do you think they'd all five be exactly the same? Not a chance. Because you can say the same things different ways in every language. So they would mean the same thing, all five. But they wouldn't say it exactly the same way. So if he was quoting from a different translation, and it means the same thing, then we're good. But if he was quoting from the same translation, then we've got a problem. By the way, not only can translations have different words but mean the same thing, um, sometimes when you're referencing a situation, you're going to have a different perspective than somebody else. So if it's a quote, it could be a translation. If it's a reference, it could be a perspective. Um, if you all walked into the bistro this morning, and Rich, I don't even think you were in there, so I'm going to use you as my guinea pig this morning, my example. You walk in, and there's Mr. Weeks. And he takes a bite of his yogurt, and he says, that's disgusting, and he throws it on the ground and storms out. Somebody comes over and says, Steve, did you hear what Rich just did? I'm like, no. Well, he got really mad at Joyce for bringing in yogurt and threw it down on the ground. And I go over to Joyce and I say, Joyce, what happened? She says, what do you mean what happened? Didn't you hear what happened in the bistro? No, I wasn't in the bistro. So I go over to Laura. I say, Laura, what happened in the bistro? Well, I don't know. Rich was having a bad day. And he took a bite of the yogurt and he thought it was rotten. So he threw it on the ground. Stormed out. So I cleaned it up after him. Well, that was nice of you. Rich, what's your problem? So I go talk to Rich. I said, what happened? He said, well, I was in the bistro minding my own business, eating this yogurt. Next thing I know it, a bee stings me in the back of the neck. I drop the yogurt and I run out of there. All three of those could be right. But everybody had a different take on it. And sometimes that's what happens. I mean, we have four Gospels for a reason. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They give different perspectives. And sometimes they talk about the exact same situation that Jesus was in, but they give different perspectives. They're not contradictory. It's just different information. So, by the way, do you like yogurt? It's okay. It's okay? All right. <laughs> Ever been stung by a bee? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Might drop your yogurt if that happened? What's up? Might you drop your yogurt if that happened? Oh, I'd be running like crazy. Yeah, running like crazy. Yeah, bees are nasty. All right, so the second que first question, is it a quote or a reference? The second question is, if it's a quote, what translation is it from? But even dealing with all that, there seems to be one piece of it that's very problematic. Let's take a look. Psalm 40 says, but my ears you have pierced. And Hebrews 10 says, but a body you prepared me. Everything I just shared with you doesn't seem to answer for this problem. But actually, it does. Let me tell you what I discovered. First, when I researched, my ears have you pierced, I saw some translation said, my ears have you pierced, my ears have you opened. And I found 
I could see why they would say both, because if you've got a pierced ear, you open an ear. But an open ear can mean something else in Scripture altogether. It can talk about being receptive and obedient to God. Or somebody who stops up their ears is considered somebody who's stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and disobedient to God. So that's one place my mind went. But my mind went further. Before I tell you where it went, let me give you the context again of the Hebrews passage. The, he, the meaning of the Hebrew, Hebrews passage, all taken together, is it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. We needed a better sacrifice. Jesus came as a willing sacrifice to die for our sins. That's the context. That's what it's trying to tell us. In fact, Jesus came as a servant and as a sacrifice. He came as both. Listen, here's what he said. I'm in Matthew 20. Um, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, now he's referring to himself, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to serve, to become a servant, and he came to be a sacrifice, to give his life a ransom for many. That's exactly what Hebrews is talking about. It's talking about him coming as a servant, and it's talking about him coming as a sacrifice. Hebrews 10 says, a body you prepared prepared for me. That means that Jesus came in a human body to do God's will as his servant and as his sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. I'm now the body. I'm now the willing servant. I have come to do your will. And the will is, of course, that he becomes the sacrifice, verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By the way, that's how you can be a man of God or a woman of God, still mess up and still be holy before God because of Jesus, what he did for us. He makes us holy. But anyway, a body you have prepared me, my ears have you opened. How in the world could those mean the same thing? Let me tell you how they can mean exactly the same thing. Exodus 21, verse 2. Listen. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. Now, verse 5. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Are you with me? If you're a servant, you can go free. But you might realize I'm better off with this master than I was out on my own. In fact, I became a servant because I couldn't afford to live. I couldn't feed my kids. My farm was failing. I'm a lousy farmer. I can't handle money. But since I've been with my boss, I have prospered. He has prospered. He's given me a position that I do well in. I've made more money than I've ever made alone. I've got a wife and kids. I've got a good... I don't want to quit my job. I'll take this job forever. Really? Yeah. So we go to the judges. He wants to stay my, my, my employee, using our language. 
He wants a life contract. He wants not just the six-year contract. He wants in forever. You agree to this willingly? I sure do. I love my master. He's a great man. I want to stay his forever. I want to be part of his family. Okay, you've got the witnesses? We've got the witnesses. So they take him over to the doorpost. Now, this is significant because on the doorposts in Israel, the law was carved. God's word was there. So it's kind of like he was becoming a servant to both God and to his master. And what was the sign of his willingness to serve? An opened ear. So the symbolic ears open, willing to obey God, is pictured in a literal opening of the ear, an earring, to serve his master. I believe Psalm 40 uses a euphemism, or at least presents one, that a pierced ear, maybe instead of a euphemism, should just call it a symbol, that a pierced ear is a completely sold-out voluntary servant. So when somebody says, my ear is opened, they're saying metaphorically, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do, and they're saying physically, I'm going to do whatever my master wants me to do. I am his servant for life. That's how I see this Hebrews and Psalm 40 passage. It doesn't use the same words, but it makes the exact same point using different words, almost like the Gospel of John versus the Gospel of Luke talking about the same story, making the same point, but using a different way of communicating it. All of us choose at one point in our lives who will be our master. If you love your master if you decide that serving him is better than being your own master or serving, living on your own, you make a commitment to serve him for life. That is how it is with us, too. We have a choice of masters. We're our own master. We can serve money. We can serve people. We can serve God. Jesus came to make us holy. But he cannot and he will not force holiness on anybody. It's a matter of choice. We become holy by turning from our sins and believing in Jesus and following him. He died for our sins and made atonement because it wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and goats could actually do that. That was a symbol. Just like the piercing of an ear was a symbol that something bigger and greater would come. That was replaced by Jesus himself who makes atonement for our souls. When we come to Jesus, we are considered his children, we're considered his sons, his daughters, and we're also considered his servants. 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man, this is the apostle speaking, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This morning, I encourage you to choose your master and serve him faithfully for the rest of your life. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, your word is deep and it's amazing and it tells us how you want us to be as ready servants willing to do your will. Lord, I am your servant. I am willing to do your will. But at times I feel like I'm King David. I screw up. I do bad and stupid things. Please help me to do your will all the time. 
to be pleasing to you, to not just be made holy, but to live holy. And of course, I say this prayer for me, but I mean it to be your prayer as well. If it is your prayer, then say, Amen.